Hey, folks, like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Then check out our sponsor, Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Serving Seattle book lovers for over 47 years, Horizon Books has one of the largest collection of used books in the region. Don't like the show? Well, then for Pete's sake, hit pause and go check out our sponsor, Horizon Books. Mention UpZones at the register for a 10% discount on anything in the store. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is UpZones. You have to elect yourself daily. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Happy Monday, UpZones family. We got a good show this week. Brady Walkinshaw, former state legislator out of the Capitol Hill area, almost congressman, current CEO of Grist. We'll get to him in a little bit. He was awesome. One of the things that I always wanted to do and that Michelle, my fiance, challenged me to do when she said I should start this podcast was to kind of get out of having opinions that had absolutely no impact on anything except for the ears of my friends and family who had to listen to them Uh, and just to start a public discussion. But I know that there was another component to all of that. And I knew even as I started to spin this thing up about three months ago now, still very new. Wow, three months has gone so fast. I knew even then that there would be a lot of questioning involved. I have some deeply held beliefs. One of them is that our politics right now in this country, definitely in this city, are being rent apart by uh, less policy positions and by how much we dignify the institutions by which we exercise and execute the politics to implement them. I won't lie. I see I see today's guest, uh, this week's guest, Brady, as someone who is very emblematic, in my opinion, of someone who had uh, not only fully adequate and, and frankly bordering on superior policy positions uh, when he was a public official, but who showed a deft and adept ability to execute those positions into actual policy by forming the kinds of alliances necessary to win enough tactical victories to the point where you're sort of a strategic victor. I don't think it's a stretch to say that that's the kind of stateswoman or politician that Hillary Clinton was in in addition. This is not a show about national politics. It's not a show about my opinions. It's definitely not a show about Hillary Clinton, but but you saw that. You saw, gosh, a real distaste even from within the coalition that ostensibly had been built up to support folks exactly like that in the presidential election getting on two years ago now. You saw that just torn the hell down. Uh, career politicians. Can you imagine if a, if a career executive uh, who was about to get that promotion to CEO were torn down for having experience as an executive or, or a career assistant coach? getting torn down for having the experience and and finally getting promoted to coach. I mean, it's just, it's sort of, uh, it's so, it's such surreal, sublime nonsense. It actually makes one laugh when one steps back and thinks about it. And here again, I think that the main issue is that I'll tell you what, I've been holding on to that position and it's, it's an angry one. I'm, I'm angry about it. I'm angry that not only in our national politics, but in our, uh, our local congressional race, some of our local local, local races, we seem to be tearing down the institution, or at least we seem to be more interested in tearing down 
the status quo than we are with actually sending our best and our brightest. And you now have the animating, motivating, single issue vote that I represent as the host of the show. And hopefully I won't be too pedantic about it going forward. I think this is a special project and I wouldn't want to ruin that. That being said, Brady Walkinshaw, who again, to circle back, is probably most emblematic to me at the local level of someone who represents what could have been had 2016 not been what it was, uh, gave me pause. Brady had different ideas. He, he came on the show. Well, he came by the bookstore. And I'll tell you what, he doesn't really necessarily think that way. He might have at one time. And I was there as, as his political opponents attacked his ethnic identity, right? Anything they could do. And it was done from the left, which made it even more infuriating. But he has a different position now that he's out of the halls of power. He, he really has this kind of Zen take on how the role that you're in really determines the behavior you do, that there's not one standard for how to interact in the political sphere. And if you're in the quote unquote halls of power, you've got to act one way. And if you're coming from the outside, uh, it's almost in your interests, paradoxically, to send people who don't act that way into the halls of power, which, you know, I, I'll say this, that's a, that takes a bigger, a bigger mentality and a wiser mentality than I think I have sometimes. But anyway, Brady and I got to talk uh, a great deal about local politics, talked about his new role, captaining a ship of what is really one of the coolest and longest standing environmental journalist organizations. They've done, I, I mean, I've been a reader since... <laughs> like the first Bush got elected. No, that's that's not true. But the second, maybe. And he just sort of weighed in on, on this thing that's been weighing on my heart. And as one of the central players, you know, as one of the central players in that drama, I think, how could I do anything but learn and grow from what he had to say, which was very different than the position that I'm, I guess I had come to the interview with. So, hey, this is Brady Walkinshaw, one of the true progressive leaders in this city talking about his experience as a, an elected official, as a congressional candidate, and a, a CEO. Wait, do I get to sign this after all? Yes. Anyway, how you doing? All right, I've been good. I've been like relaxed and exercising a lot. Yeah. No more people screaming at you. No more people. No more people questioning. You know. (laughs) (laughs) I did definitely take last year. I definitely took last year's like nice downtime. I mean, not downtime is in like being relaxed, but downtime and not being really public. Right. Okay. And that felt that felt great. I spent a lot of time with my husband. I lost a bunch of weight. I started exercising again. Right. I started meditating and doing yoga. The and Seattle I experience. I, I reconnected with myself spiritually a little. I needed to recenter spiritually, and I felt like I did that. How last do you do year. that as a CEO? So should we get? Are we going? We're going. Oh, we're okay, going. We're going. All right. Going. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. So now I lead. Now I lead Grist. Yeah, we're a national environmental media organization. We're based here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. But it does. How do you relax as a CEO? It compared to a, a congressional campaign, it is more relaxed. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, that's I fair. <laughs> I yeah. Feel. I guess because you can also, like, there's just dollars and cents. Yeah. I mean, and I guess I mean that metaphorically. There's just, there's a spreadsheet that kind of tells you the facts. Whereas with a political campaign, there's so many subjective realities that are clashing. Yeah. Yeah. And what I found, too, is, like, I like to work. I like to work in the evenings. Mm. And when you're in politics or when you're in office or when you're running, politics happens at night often. It happens 
informally. It happens casually. It happens mm -hmm. after finals. Bars, finals. fundraisers. Yeah. So town I mean, halls, you're like yeah. are steadily, especially on a campaign, like you're steadily like subsisting on this like diet of of unhealthy food if you're not deliberate and you're out. If you're not Barack Obama, yeah, basically. If you're, if you're yeah. Not well, I just think I actually I think maybe there's a lesson I took away is like to stay, keep yourself spiritually centered, to keep yourself kind of physically and health-wise centered. Because uh -huh, uh -huh. um, that, I think... What, while you were running? Yeah. Think, while you were well, I think it's good to do that. And now, even in a new position, a new role, I've tried to carry that through as, like, you know, find what... Find where you find, like, you know, relaxation and sanity. And, right. I mean, and we're keep all, that space. Yeah. is what we're all trying to do. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. You grew up in the area. I did. Yeah. I did. Up but north? very different. I grew up two hours from here. Right. On the Canadian border in the, okay. the Nooksack Valley. Okay. Which very different than Seattle growing. Did, it's probably community that's shrinking. Did the neighborhood towns have a lot of fun with that name? Oh, yeah. The yeah. Very frequently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People would, yes. Every sports team you would be called Nutsack Valley. Yeah. Was, <laughs> I'll just say it. I mean, that's what, that's what you were called. No point in being no, called. That's yeah. what you were called in, in high school <laughs> sports teams. And yeah. That's great. Small, so. small school, though, I imagine. It's right? small school. But I mean, no, it was, it was a, I mean, it was actually, I, mean, I shouldn't say, I mean, it was, it's tribal land. I mean, so it was the, the Nooksack tribe. Um, okay. okay. And it was abutted on tribal land. And I went through Nooksack Valley High School. And mm -hmm. Was it there. a lot of, was there a separate school for the reservation, or was a lot of the no, the, no, no. It was, it was a lot of it was fed into the into the school. So just I, mean, all I grew up. Yeah, my dad was a farm vegetables up there and ran a small nonprofit, and my mom was a teacher in the district. Mm -hmm. They still together? Yeah, they're still together. They're still awesome. up there. Yeah, that's got to be 40, 45 years now. That is, how long have my parents been married? My parents have been married since nineteen seventy nine. Okay, yeah, thirty eight years, closing yeah, in yeah, on yeah. forty years. Jeez. Yeah. They're doing better than, yeah. than I am, that's for sure. Average, uh, yeah. Hey, you know what? I got a good one, though. I'm getting, I can't wait. I'm getting, oh, are you? I'm getting married, yeah. You're getting, you're I'm, engaged? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that's why we don't hang out enough, man. Who are you, who's, who are you getting married Michelle, to? Michelle, yeah. I don't know Michelle. Yeah. Well, well, we well maybe, have you met Michelle? I think you have, okay. but that's okay. okay. It was like at a campaign okay. event or something. Well, so. I, I am, <laughs> I am married and happily so. Yeah, I know, yeah. Well, I'm, the four of us will have to get Well, speaking of, to the theme of growth, I just did an interview with Seattle Met last week because Someone had told them that my first date with my husband was at Sun Liquor uh, uh -huh. on Summit. Uh -huh. and you may see, have seen this, but Sun Liquor is up for sale. It, it's closing. Oh, on I didn't Summit, know that. The original Damn. Sun Liquor Bar, which opened in 2006. Yeah. And then I um, went on a number of unsuccessful first dates. I think it's a date spot. To Sun Liquor. I used to yeah. live on Summit. The first yeah. apartment I moved into in Seattle was 222 East Summit, which was the Blackstone. Uh -huh. I paid $750 a month in 2008 for this great studio that okay. kind of the whole city. Okay. Um, and it was, yeah, it was beautiful. But that's, yeah, that was like my date spot with some liquor. Gotcha. Yeah. Got, did you, is that where you guys went? That's where we went on our first date. Yeah. Nice. Amazing. Okay. So, yes, I know you're a Princeton guy. So I you, you went back Princeton. east for yep. school. Yep. That's an interesting transition, isn't it? It was. Like kind yeah, of suburban, totally. or in your case, really rural. rural. I mean, yeah. I grew up in a place where very few kids went on to go to college. Yeah. I mean, it was a school yeah. that had 80, 90% of kids on free reduced lunches. I mean, it was a very yeah. different environment to grow up in. And all of a sudden, there's like eating clubs. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, my experience of going to college was I came from a suburb of Brooklyn, predominantly Latino suburb. My listeners know that, but just for background, I guess. And like I, I am conscious only in retrospect of actually having lost my accent. And, and I don't think it was intentional, but I think it was like hyper where, where unintentional. This kind of Brooklyn Latino oh, okay. accent. Like, hey man, you know, yeah. I don't talk like that anymore. You got and, rid of and college it. did it to me. And it was specifically that kind of hallowed halls of people who speak <laughs> with their noses a little up in the air. But it affects you, man. And it's hard to, it, it is hard to kind of live in both spaces sometimes. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it definitely, especially, and you know, people, I think for me too, coming from where I did, I think you also try to adapt. So maybe yeah. in a sense, you end up acquiring more of those traits. Right, right, because right. Because you try to overcompensate and adapt. Yeah, that's true. And then you go back into the world, then you realize everyone hates <laughs> snobs from the Ivy League. Yeah. So it's, it's lose-lose, right? You did some traveling, were you? Yeah, so I lived, so I finished school. I mean, my, my story in brief was I finished school and then I, I lived in Honduras. I, every every summer when I was in college, I was doing research on educational outcomes for kids living in urban slums in mm -hmm. Tegucigalpa, oh, okay. in the capital. And I started working in this in this slum called uh, Villanueva, Colonia Villanueva, which was the original squatter settlement in Tegucigalpa, where in the early 1980s there was this big toma, this big take of land mm -hmm. uh, that happened while the city was the very kind of first wave of urbanization in Tegucigalpa. And who was taking the land? Uh, people from the campesinos, people who were coming in from the outside of the city who were coming into Tegucigalpa to find was jobs. It, was this political in, in nature, or was it just sort of organic? The, the, the urbanization was organic and employment-driven, yeah, okay. but the actual taking of land and the, the seizing of the land, that was political. I mean, mm -hmm. people needed homes. But then it's since grown into one of the, it grew into one of the largest slums in Honduras, probably the largest slum in Honduras. Wow, and so you, and were, you were working down there? I was there. doing research there for yeah. every summer in college, and then um, ended up doing a Fulbright and working on studying educational outcomes for kids in primary schools in the slum. Oh, right on, uh, right on. And it was amazing. So I, I, that, that kind of formed a lot of kind of, I did my undergraduate thesis on that, and then I ended up living there for a year. And, mm -hmm. uh, still go back there. Actually started a nonprofit with a bunch of friends that are both all Honduran and some of my friends actually from school called Proyecto Villanueva, mm -hmm. which works on youth leadership development in urban slums for kids. So it's all about how do you create like student government? How do you create soccer clubs? How do you create school gardens? Oh, that's and how important. can you yeah. try to create kind of cultures of extracurricular activity, as we call it here, but cultures outside of the classroom that give kids things to do. And then, you know, a lot of places like in the U.S. and a lot of like poor parts of the United States, I mean, that youth leadership curriculum has been done, but we did, that's what a lot of my research was about. So oh, that's really that awesome. And, and still and it's going. still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's still, still there. It's 11 years old. It has the same director that it had who worked on it at the beginning. That's great. His name is Patrick. But it's super small. I mean, buddy, have, buddy yours from yeah, someone I met there. He was he actually was someone who I met through. He was doing outdoor education work mm -hmm. at the time I met him, and he was taking kids from the slum out like to hikes do, like, and whatnot, hikes and ropes courses and yeah, things yeah. like that in Honduras. Yeah, yeah. And he ended up. He's led this organization now for 11 years. That's fantastic. But it's tiny. I mean, he's the only staff. It has a budget of $30,000 a year. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's tiny. Yeah, yeah. But it works in six to eight schools in the slum. That's Super really focused. great. So that, I mean, so you're, what, 25, right? At the time, yeah, 23. 23, yeah. <laughs> 22, so you're, 23. You're like, meanwhile, 23, I was trying yeah. to get, like, my band off the ground, you know? <laughs> Obviously, I unsuccessfully. Have, I should so. have done that. Thanks for making me feel like shit, Brady. I should have done that. <laughs> All been downhill. And then I and then I went yeah and then I moved back came back, back here Seattle. and you were doing gate stuff is that right yeah you were uh, so working on food and nutrition yeah in that's right countries. that's yeah, right so I was at the Gates Foundation basically until I went into right until I went into the legislature in 2013 mm -hmm. so I was at, I was at Gates and then I got more and more politically active in Seattle in probably 2011 2012 partly around marriage. Mm -hmm. And oh, because that's when that's all happening. Yeah, right? I mean, marriage, we passed marriage in 2012, right? And we were the first state to pass marriage at the ballot right. in 2012 and got involved in that work and then got increasingly involved in politics. Was it personal? I mean, were you, were you trying to get married at that point? Was I trying to get married? At that oh, point, oh, yeah. Oh, 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 it was, like, it was marriage personal. It was personal in the sense that, like, I, I forecasted it in the future, but I was not, like, literally in the process oh, of okay. trying to get married. Oh, okay. Well, no, yeah. fair enough. We were together at the time. but One, no, no, we one would want to have, yeah. you know, one's equal rights, even yes. if one wasn't going yes. to exercise them. Yeah, no, yes. that makes sense. But that's interesting, actually, Brady, because it's not like anyone you would have run against 
in the Capitol Hill area was going to be against marriage equality, right? Yeah. So, so right. what what is it that motivated you to jump in? I think for I mean for me it was more of a I actually reached this this like decision point in my life kind of in twenty in two thousand thirteen I was faced with this decision. Well, first of all, I started to feel like. I wanted to live and do work in the community where I lived, mm -hmm. and I was—I got to the point where I was tired of spending so much time doing work. And I think it's incredibly important work, and it's great, and we need to do it, and it's fantastic. But I—I I started to get a little disillusioned with you doing work. Act local a little yeah, more. Yeah, act yeah. local, or or frankly, move abroad and actually do international work abroad. So I, I was kind of but act local this, there. Act yeah. local there, but <laughs> right, yeah, live yeah. in a community where you more directly has skin in the game where you were more, more closely connected mm -hmm. to the consequences of actions and you could see things more connected. You know, um, and that was really important to me. So I've seen a lot of that just among, I mean, our, we're pretty close in age and mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are feeling like Facebook burnout or something. Well, I, and I deactivated my account, I'm off. Oh, are you Gone. totally off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, don't, I mean, I, I'm not, I actually need to use Facebook <laughs> for it because of the you know, organizer and the, and the poetry right. thing that I do. And That's I, the only thing I miss. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's the events and stuff, right? It's events, yeah. But, but I don't mean Facebook per se. I just mean there's this life that's happening that's like going through this prism of social media. Yeah. And I think we're all trying to figure out like what the F are we going to do in like real life. I see a lot of my mid-30s friends are now kind of like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna start yeah. a bowling club, right, or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, like we all have all these projects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To find uh, meaning. No, I agree. And so yours was you just ran for office. Well, mine was sort of like, do I move? Literally, like, do I move to Ethiopia for this like totally unusual thing, which would have been awesome, and I probably would still be in Ethiopia. Like, uh -huh. do we move to Ethiopia, or uh -huh. you know, my husband was just finishing his PhD and like he was you know starting his life and doing academic work, or was do I do I like steer local and then kind of it wasn't necessarily run for office, but then the opportunity came up to run for the is, appointment. I, because I wasn't elected the first time; I was appointed by the governor. No, by by the way that the local the local party appointments happen in Washington State. Mm -hmm. They're very local. I mean, so it's these the the which anyone listening to this go to your democratic local democratic committee meetings, their mm -hmm. district meetings. So no, what, what's the whole the precinct, backstory? The precinct committee officers vote. So there's what's the backstory though? How, how did you? I mean. How did I, how who did died? I mean, who died? Oh, yeah, I mean, oh, oh, not, no, no died. one died. Or got arrested. And or... Murray was elected mayor. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's oh, that was happened. his seat. Yeah, you so, had Murray's seat. So, okay. Well, I, Jamie, someone named Jamie Peterson was in, in my seat. Jamie moved to become in the Ed's seat, and there was a domino effect. I see. So then I, I was appointed by the precinct committee officers of the 43rd district, which we're sitting in right now, by the 43rd district Democratic precinct committee officers into that right, I state see. representative position. And that's a, and do you still have to stand even if you're not? Um, so you, you, what happens is they recommend, and then through the process in Washington State, the, actually the county council, because the council in Whoa. which the majority of the of like kind of the district sits, uh -huh. they ended up voting on that for approval. So the the kind of it's not legal, but it's not legally binding for the council. So in law and statute, the county council actually gets to fill the vacancy. Interesting. But they defer kind of more by tradition mm -hmm. to the recommendations of these Democratic or if it was a Republican seat previously, to the Republican precinct committee officers. But I they see. defer to the, the party the party body. That's which is so in charge with recommending. It, is it, that unique to Washington State? I don't State know. Or, yeah. It may be. I mean, it does seem... I actually think it's a process that can work well, but there are also examples of where the county council has overturned the recommendation Good. of the committee officer. If it was like an egregious pick? Or, or you know, even sometimes even not. Like, so it's some t sometimes sometimes the council has like exercised... I don't know, it's, it's kind of authority. In a yeah, sense. It's prerogative. It's if prerogative. You're, it's yeah, legal. Cool. Yeah. 
So you got appointed, then you ran again and then in 14. I ran again in 14 right. and 1, right. yeah. Right. And then got I was it. in office, and then I ran for Congress, and then yeah. lost, and it was the best experience of my life. It was an amazing experience running for Congress. I mean, look, I was an excited supporter of yours. You know that. I was, I was came and did what I could. That was an interesting race, and I look, you, you speak to it the way you want, but I observed a few things. I observed that you got in before anyone else did. Uh, yep, that's and true. <laughs> there are some things kind of symptomatic of maybe where we are in the left, which I'm, you know, as a proud progressive, but nobody wanted to get in until you did, and then all of a sudden everyone wanted to get in. And then also some of the national groups yeah. started to pick sides, even though a lot of them really weren't from here. You know, obviously I'm, it's clear from the way I'm asking the question that I might be a bit critical of those two aspects, but I'm curious what your take on kind of how that race played out was. Yeah, well, that's a big question. I, I think that, first I'd say is like, I, I think that a lot of people with common values were running, and partly it's because Washington State back in 2006, we were we along we joined California and jungle primary. We exactly we joined California <clears> and <throat> Louisiana as the only three states in the country to have kind of this jungle primary system mm -hmm. where the top two vote getters move on to the, the general election. Yeah, which is the better way to, to well, I, I'm a fan. I think personally. it does a, it does a bunch of different things. I, I guess I'd also just say that I think that the I, I like wholeheartedly support. And I think she's actually doing a great job. I, I totally support Pramila, and I think okay. she's done an awesome job in this. That's good so to hear. Far. So yeah, I, like that's that has been true to me, and I think it's it's great. I'm excited that she's representing this district. But I I think what you saw in the race was was definitely, you know, you when you have people who share a lot of common themes and share a lot of common values, you do end up finding different things that start to be differentiators. And I I think that I don't know if I would I would I wouldn't say like our race was maybe emblematic of of kind of divisions in the left, but it certainly got, it was certainly nationalized. Um, mm -hmm. It was certainly nationalized. And I think it was, it was nationalized by a lot of groups, you know, for both of us who, who supported us. Yeah. I mean, it was nationalized for me by you know, national groups like the Latino Victory Fund and the Gay and Lesbian Victory Fund. I mean, it was nationalized by Bernie Sanders. It was nationalized yeah. by yeah. a lot of different big figures. And I guess one of my takeaways is that perhaps when you run in a year when there is a presidential election, there's so many things you can't predict. Right. Like, like, right. There's, like it's <laughs> inevitably, inevitably your race is going to get in some ways shaped by certain narrative, certain narratives yep. that, that honestly, in many ways are out of your control. Yep. I mean, yep. certainly you can That's play into them. That's going to happen even in off, in an off year though too, right? Yeah. I mean, it can happen in an off year, but it's, it's, I mean, a lot of, what's going to be interesting is I think a lot of people now are going to look at Connor Lamb's race in Pennsylvania and unpack that race in different ways. And people will draw different conclusions from it. Well, you see it already it, right? That, right? I, I yeah. actually love it. I, I don't, I, I don't know if you heard what Paul, what Paul Ryan said. He said he was pro-life. He said, you know, he said, he basically said He's like not a conservative district's going to elect a conservative. And yeah, they elected yeah. a conservative and then Donald Trump came out and said like, yeah, he's a lot like me, you know? So he kind of owned him as a candidate. It's like, you know, yeah. he, he's a lot like me. Yeah. But I, I do think then we find ourselves in this kind of question when you had that last big Democratic wave, which was in 2006, and elected a lot of what then became called like blue dog Democrats. Are we looking at a national, are we looking at a political world right now where do you kind of elect people that are, that are more further to the left in these districts that are more swing? Do you push mm -hmm. for that? Or do yeah. you find people who, who do hold positions like Connor Lamb had, which, you know, pro-gun, I shouldn't yeah. say pro-gun, but I mean, well, he has certain he, Second Amendment positions right. that were not, um, I, right. ones that I don't share, for instance, but, but pro -gun, I also live even, in a very different even place. Even pro-gun is actually, in my opinion, an acceptable position as long as you're not pro-NRA. Right. right? Fair, I mean, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. They're so so this is funny. You said something just now about further to the left, right? 
Of, co of course, I grant what you're saying. I know what you're saying, but there's another, there's a deeper issue there sure. that I don't think gets talked about enough. And, and I've actually, I've, I've drawn this on like whiteboards <laughs> for my friends. I, I can't do that. Well, maybe we'll throw it up on the post, you know. And yeah, there's right and left, and there's a general kind of government should intervene in the economy instead of your personal life. That would be called someone on the left, right? Yeah. But then there's also this other whole axis, which is how interested in using existing status quo or structures are you? How willing to, whether or not you sit on the furthest, furthest left or furthest, furthest right, Tom Cotton and Barack Obama, how willing are you to, to you know, find temporary alliances to get legislation passed, right? I feel like we're not talking about that enough. It's like right and left might not even be the problem. Establishment versus anti-establishment might be actually what we're really talking about when we talk about it. What do you, you think about you that? Mean, you mean the, this question of how you solve problems? I guess what Yeah, I'm it's a question of how you solve problems and what levers of power you use and, and do you negotiate with the quote-unquote enemy? And I'm, I'm not calling it an enemy. I'm paraphrasing other folks, you know. How long have you held on to power in the past? A general relationship to institutions and institutional power versus what really is like a very postmodern critique of institutions and power. I feel like that's the real schism we have right now. I, I actually think in reflecting over this last year and a half, when I was in the legislature, I served only, I only had the opportunity to serve for three years in the minority. In the, in, when not, I served the majority in the House, but when you had one body that was in the minority. So the state Senate was in the minority. Mm -hmm. So to get anything done, you had to have partners who were across the aisle. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of by default, my experience was in the actual like day-to-day -day of legislating fairly shaped by needing to find allies with whom you could create common ground. But for whatever reason, that was held against you in the race. I don't know if it was, but what I was going to say is I actually have become, and now being outside of the political system, and I was so intentional when I left. After the race, I reflected a lot. I really wanted to move kind of a step a kind of sideways from politics and definitely move into a place that was more around cultural change and media and, and a little more connected to movements. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually, in some ways, I, I, I wouldn't say I've become more like radical, but in some ways I have. Like mm. I actually think in the last year and a half, I've felt more and more strongly that to change the course that our country is headed down, and whether that's climate for the planet with its climate change, whether that's issues of, of how we're looking at, at guns, I think that the scale of solutions that we're offering right now, the, mm. the, the types of solutions we're not we're putting out there, are not sufficiently large to confront the scale of the problem. The that Overton we face. window needs to be. Yeah, so I really, I really believe we have this problem right now that mm. the scale of the solutions that are being offered are insufficient to address the scale of the solutions that we face, and that's totally true to me in terms of when I look at climate change as a problem, where I don't think we're going to get, we're not going to avert a, a four degree world or whatever, whatever or three degree or two degree or whatever degree we think is sufficient. We're not going to avert that but through energy efficient light bulbs. Yeah. We're going to avert that through some pretty bold and aggressive steps around actually making, I believe, making a transition off of fossil fuels that is pretty rapid and one that is actually pretty resolute about not continuing to emit. So I, I actually have become, I've moved the spectrum, you know, yeah. I, don't, this establish, I don't know what the right dichotomy is, but yeah. I do find myself feeling much more strongly about the need to have bigger solutions out there sure. today. Outside of the establishment. Yeah, and they're that, not created. That's and interesting. I actually, yeah. you know, maybe, it's, maybe it's different people play different roles at different times. Yeah, and, yeah. And that, you know, when you're actually working through a, you know, a body politic, like you're pushing, you have to work within the parameters that you're given. Exactly. No, um, no exactly. But I, I just think there's a, you need to be able to have the ideas out there that shift the, the playing field. So that's really interesting, right? So you, you're 
the first thing you went to was carbon and the, gl the globe, right? The whole planet. If we don't densify, if we don't, if we don't bring people out of suburban sprawl, if we don't get people out of cars, if we don't stop investing in highways and start inventing, investing in railways, this is not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And even in Seattle, you know, which is this bastion of <laughs> radical thought anyway, I don't know about radical action, but radical thought, right? We can't even stick to our word when it comes to ST3, right? Even that got clawed back, right? Yeah. What needs to happen in the next, you know, if you're waving your magic wand and you get to change one thing about Seattle in two years, what needs to happen to make those changes occur? Yeah, we need more housing. And I think we need more of every type of housing. We need more market rate housing. So then let's get to how you do that. We yeah. need more public housing. We need more housing for people at 30% of the area median income. We just need more housing. So if you start with this more housing of all housing premise and just going like playing it out a little bit, I believe in a future where people live in smaller square footage. I believe in a future where, you know, whatever income background you come from or whatever race you come from, whatever look, however you look, or, you know, that you're able to commute in a reasonable period of time to get to your job. Whether if you're a low wage worker and you're forced to live two hours outside of the city on a low wage to have to come in for a service job, like that's just untenable. Society can't. It's amazing how many of my guests are talking about this right now so this, this, that, this doesn't the system doesn't work right yeah. so so you you can jump to density I, I I would just kind of jump start with this like we need more housing so if we're gonna if we're gonna take more housing and I agree we need more density like what well, the two are they're almost they're the same, they're, right? they're you know they're, intricately they're they're yeah. connected right. <laughs> right but what I what I think we need do we need to change zoning in the city absolutely so I don't think that we're gonna get to the solution being a city that's 65% zone single-family residential right so I mean I absolutely feel that, and um, but I also, I also think that there are, there are a lot of ways we increase housing supply, and think about things like displacement and gentrification, which are s super important and real and affect a lot of people and communities. Those are real. Th those are real things that right. we need to be also well, talking so about. Gentrification so is interesting because um, cities that have. Cities that are simultaneously growing and have the best relationship with gentrification generally do it by adding a bunch of housing. Totally agree. I mean, that, I mean, you have this basic issue, I mean, the basic arithmetic issue mm -hmm. of you have maybe three times as many people coming into the city daily as you have new units created. And I don't, don't that's, it's not three to one. I don't know what the ratio but is. But that's not entirely off. But that's actually not, I think that's actually right. I think that's in the general ballpark. Yeah. And where is those two other people going to go? Exactly. So, so where do you get more housing? I mean, one, one place you get more housing is instead of building above light rail, a light rail at Broadway and John, which people fought, we fought to move up to eight stories there. Like that housing, why isn't that 20 stories? So I well, mean, the you start Broadway to, and John is go ahead. zero stories, right? The one across Caddy Corner from the CVS or whatever it is. There. Oh, no, no. We'll be building on that. Oh, that will be built. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, no, that's going to be built up. That's oh, going to be built up to eight stories. I, I almost wish you hadn't told me that because oh, that yeah. gives me the anger and, and inspiration oh, no, no. to go out and do uh, advocacy work every day. I oh, no, no, that's it. already... That's so good. I'm it's glad. capped at that, yeah, right? So, uh, I, mean, it, I mean, and a lot of it is zoned 16, 80% area median incomes. There's a lot of workforce and low-income housing built into it, which is terrific. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And there was a lot, and the, there's a lot of work. Yeah, there's been a lot of work done around that. But I do think it, you come back to this question of why, when you get past Madison and Broadway, and you get past that intersection of what defines the zoning around First Hill, why can you not suddenly keep buildings of that altitude going into like corridors like Broadway? Mm -hmm. or, or yeah, well, Bro Broadway should be 
but we had a guest once describe it as a, the Barcelona effect, where you get these tall buildings that almost create a room on the block. And it's actually good for civic engagement. It's, it's been shown to increase people's feeling of belonging to the neighborhood. It obviously brings down housing costs because you get all the space used, right? No, I, I think that more housing is like this value that we need to develop around. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and it is also, I also think it's an issue of political courage to address it. I hope that the city, I mean, that's the issue that to me is at the center of climate, it's the center of equity, it's the center of racial justice in many ways. Mm -hmm. you, you have a lot of issues that come home to roost I around don't imagine, housing. I don't imagine that a lot of the actual gentrifiers, you know, and I, I again, I'll use that term really neutrally, like just people moving in that are, have a little bit of money and pushing people out yep. by, by no design of their own. Right? I mean, pushing people out, but, you know, and sometimes, certainly if those were renters pushing them out, but sometimes, you know, you do have people who in some ways have owned homes, right, for decades, and the property, they are also taking assets out of that, right? Where I was going is I don't see, sense a lot of broad political opposition to upzoning, to more housing, to density. In fact, I would imagine that 80% of the folks who live in Via 6 or who live in the Belltown Apartments would vote in favor of legislate or would 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 support legislation upzoning the entire city right so why isn't why haven't the folks who are actually coming in why aren't they being marshaled as a resource as a political resource to counteract the kind of single family movement that's that's holding it back you know i think who's who's moving to seattle today i mean i i think that's a really important question of is this a civically engaged group? Like, how do we, how do we, how no, do you engage? No, it's not. It's not. It's how do you engage? Why don't we engage them? Kind of you newcomers to the city. Yeah. Politically. Yeah. I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's and a lot I, of potential. Because I, I do think you have, and I haven't seen, I actually don't, I know this exists, this must exist somewhere. I haven't seen, like, how polling on this issue breaks down mm -hmm. across, like, mm -hmm. homeowner versus renter, age, yeah, race. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen how that polling breaks down. Right. But I mean, you would you would imagine, and it's probably true, that younger renters are probably more supportive of of it does, and, density and, and, than yeah, and than also that, just right? it's no skin off their back, right? Yeah. So from a purely self-interested perspective, the gentrifiers again, I'm kind of putting that in a very neutral sense, right? Sh should be the biggest ally in fighting displacement. Yeah. I took too much time ranting. No, on I mean I yeah, where I see a disconnect and where I see is one of the challenges in the mm. political frame has been this notion of kind of how developers get characterized, which I agree, I think you, you have very profitable, development can be a very profitable industry, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> it can be a very profitable industry, which is why it's happening in such rapidity in the city, it's happened so rapidly in the city right, right now. Right. But I do think for people who argue for up zones and density, you have developers who become a little bit of this boogeyman, right? Of course. For opposition, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. So. And we need, we need to develop our way out of this right. problem. Yeah. Right. So what do you have going on now? Tell me about Grist. So it's great. So I'm I'm running Grist, which for the for you you may know it, but we're I've been we're a one subscriber of the, since like oh, 2003. Oh, you have. Okay. I love it. Okay. Four. We're one of the largest environmental media organizations mm -hmm. in the country, and we do environmental journalism. We were just nominated. Uh, we didn't win it, but we were just nominated as a finalist for our first ever National Magazine Award. Oh, cool. We lost to Cosmopolitan. Um, <laughs> They've been doing some, or like Teen Cosmo, right? We lost, no, we actually lost to Cosmo, the big one. Oh, but, um, okay, okay. Because Teen, yeah, Teen, Teen Vogue. Vogue. Teen Vogue. Teen the Vogue is on a roll. They've yeah, been doing yeah. really well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So now, and I'm working in publishing, so yeah. in, in, in journalism. Uh, we have a, a 
cool team of journalists and editors and graphic designers and illustrators and video producers. Mm -hmm. And our vision, Grist has always been, our tone has always been defined. We've always defined it as kind of irreverent, accessible, and smart is mm -hmm. what we, we try to say. And our vision at Grist is we're working for a planet that doesn't burn and a future that doesn't suck. Yeah. And the way we're doing it is by trying to tell a story of a better future that mm -hmm. is so irresistible that you want it right now. And, mm -hmm. and that idea to me mm -hmm. gets back to what we were talking about before around how you frame the scale of solutions. How do you put the solutions out there, whether those are solutions that are driven by social movements, whether those are you know, radical changes in, in the energy grid, what, right. whether it's changing how we shift off animal-based, particularly cow-based and beef-based agriculture. Right. Um, right. There's a lot of innovation happening there. and. We're trying to tell that story of like what that better future looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's that's grist. And you can I mean, read us. You can read us on our site. Or <laughs> yeah, well, you're playing time to multiple, plug through multiple partners from the Atlantic to the Guardian, who we syndicate through. We'll we'll let you plug for sure. Um, <laughs> but but what does it mean to be a CEO of a kind of an environmental advocacy organization? Like that? We're journal. We're always we always are careful to say we're not at we're journalism okay. and like. We, um, but it's advocacy journalism, right? Would you would you would you disagree? It's a good question. I mean, that gets talked about a lot. We we have a perspective, which is that climate change is real, it's happening, and that the communities that have least are most impacted by it. Mm -hmm. So we, we absolutely have a perspective. But beyond that, I, we don't advocate for policies. We don't advocate for. Oh, so you just sort of put it. I mean, know, we, I, we actually, cover we I cover. I never issues. thought of it that way. Um, yeah. yeah. And we're actually not allowed to. We can't endorse candidates, for instance, because mm -hmm. we're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. That's that's a bit of how we've thought about that. Of course, of course, we have an opinion. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. you know, and our our opinion is. Uh, and and do we run headlines about how uh, Scott Pruitt is tearing apart the EPA? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we certainly have opinions. Oh, these guys are bad for the environment. No, they're actually great, great advocates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great advocates, <laughs> pulling more fossil fuels out of the ground. But I I do think if you look at when we think about the state of solutions and we think about where we're headed in the environmental movement. I, I think in some areas we're doing well, but I think in other areas, I mean, I, I think it's very powerful right now what you're seeing with social movements kind of taking charge. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna have a big test in Washington State this year uh, around a carbon price. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm really excited about. And I think we're gonna, there's been a, you know, a coalition that's been led here by communities of color for a long time that is going to be at the forefront of that. And I think it's a huge opportunity to become not only the first state that legalized marijuana and the first state to legalize marriage, but to become the first state to, to really, through the voters, put a really bold price on carbon. Mm -hmm. um, what's, on the, what's the uh, obstacle there? What institutions and what forces are standing in the way of just there being a very bold action there? Well, fossil, fossil fuel emitters, okay. right? So yeah. the millions of dollars that are going to get poured in against this. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. fossil fuel emitters. Who will who will make the case that this is actually a tax that gets passed on to consumers? That's always the case. That, that's always that, the like, argument. Do you right? wanna do you wanna pay more for your gas at the pump? Right. Right. So that's that's the question, and that's going to be part of the campaign against it. Is do you wanna pay more for your gas at the pump? Well, what's the counter argument? If you're sitting around the dinner table and your uncle, who's like a reasonable guy but skews conservative, he's like, I'm just gonna have to pay more so tree huggers can have their little carbon tax. What's the what's the argument there? Yeah, I mean, do you wanna do you wanna you know breathe clean air and drink clean water and have a planet? You have to advocate, I believe, around like a fundamental value of mm -hmm. of this is the environment we want to leave to our kids. Mm -hmm. How effective do you find that argument with people who skew maybe just even just a little right of center? Is is that work with them? Well, here's here's where I think you're seeing 
progress. So I think for a long time, and this you you saw this shift, right? So you even in 2008, you had John McCain in the presidential campaign come out and say that climate change is a national security threat. So you had statements coming out of leading Republicans, mm -hmm. not all of them, but a couple of them, going into 2008 that said that. 2010 comes around. Tea Party. Obama. So Tea Party comes out after the 2008 election. Obama, the, the, we, the federal government with democratic control, we failed to pass cap and trade, mm -hmm. which was oh, attempted yeah. in 2010. And at, in, in conjunction with that, you see the Koch brothers actually starting to campaign against Republicans, specifically with primary challengers, the Tea Party specifically on this issue. So there, there's, there's this idea that, that, that you saw climate change move much, much more into a partisan frame. Mm -hmm. under the Obama administration than it had been before. So I think one of the communications challenges is, is how do we move climate change out of a partisan frame? And I think you're starting to see that in some places. So one place you're starting to see that is clean energy. You're starting to see you know, rural like utilities mm -hmm. um, start to transition to, to energy mixes on the grid of like wind and solar. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see you know, conservatives be like, yeah, wind power isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm or solar power is not a bad thing. And and then politically, you're starting to see a lobby <laughs> built up for the wind and the solar industry right. that's applying pressure right. on Republicans too right. to support the expansion of alternative energy sources. So I, I think electricity and then more broadly energy, you've started to see us move out of a partisan frame and into what you might call like an economic opportunity frame. Well, it almost sounds like what we talked about earlier where the culture had to move first. Yeah, yeah, I think and so. Then, and then the parties are maybe hopefully following behind. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. So, but I think there's, it's super challenging to do that on other issues, um, like climate justice. I mean, I think that's still... That's you know, going to take a lot of work. It's in, a part, yeah. it's in a partisan frame right now. Staying on the carbon price, what can someone tuning in do? in the next year. Yeah, I'll say it. I think this is the most campaign in Washington, important campaign in Washington state this year um, in terms of meaningful policy actions. It's going to be one of the most competitive statewides. Um, there will be certainly other things like we have to re-elect Maria Cantwell and so forth, but in terms of statewide elections, this is going to be one of the most important, I would say this is going to be the most important mm -hmm. thing that's on the ballot this year. There's, there's going to be, we could also see a ballot initiative around excessive use of force, which the legislature took That's action I on. That's I-940 or... Yeah. yeah, so we'll see what... The legislature did take action on it, so we'll see if anything happens. But mm -hmm. but this the, the, the climate legislation, which would you know price carbon for the first time in Washington State, you can volunteer on it. You can gather signatures for it. You can, you can, you can mm -hmm. get involved in it in a lot of different ways. We like to end every show with a segment we call If You Care About, You Should. Fill in the blanks. If you care about... If you care about climate change, you should eat less beef. <laughs> You're breaking my heart, but I'll take it. Brady Walkinshaw. There we go. Thank you so much. All here. right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to the one and only Brady Walkinshaw, CEO of Grist. Check out grist.org to get informed and involved about upcoming carbon tax advocacy. This week's sponsor was Horizon Books, home of the famous autograph table. All music by the Subcons. Dope opening poem sample by Anthony McPherson. Thanks to our sound engineers, Brandon and Naboo, as always. And I am your host, Ian Martinez. This has been Upzones, a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week. My favorite.